Well, a good morning to all of you, and thank you for being here, those of you who are here in person, and for those of you who are watching online, I just want to say welcome, and we are so happy that you've joined us as we encourage each other this morning in our assembly to live in a way that honors and glorifies our Lord. Uh, if you are visiting here with us today, and you'd like to find out more about our church uh, after we're finished, I'm going to be in the Welcome Center along with our Howdy team, and we would love to get to know you and answer questions and help you get plugged in if you, if you would like to do so. If you're online and you'd like to know more about our church, all you have to do is go to our webpage, and we would love to hear from you if you have any questions. We are in a series this fall during our season of invitation. The series is called Peacemakers. And we are studying about how God has called us to be people who don't just enjoy the peace that we have through Jesus, but we're actually those who work to take peace wherever we are, whether that's in our home or our school, uh, our office, and including in our church family. God calls us to be people who are makers of peace. And this is going to be part two of a series of a lesson that we started last week from Romans chapter 14 and 15. So I would encourage you, we're going to spend a lot of time, our entire time in these two chapters, is so you can open your Bible. If you actually brought, have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Romans chapter 14. And if you have a device, you can power it up and go to Romans chapter 14, because that's where we will be this morning. Now... Paul wrote this letter, and just like almost all of the letters that Paul wrote, he divides it into two sections. The first section is what we see as a doctrinal section. It helps, it helps the readers know who they are and what their relationship is with Christ Jesus. But then the second part of the letter usually is a letter about practical living. How do we live that out? And in Romans, he does the same thing. Paul, chapters 1 through 11, talks about uh, the doctrinal portion. And then starting in 12 through the end of his letter, it's more practical living. And I have to be honest with you, the lesson last week and this week, well, really all the lessons in this series are really challenging to me. And I don't know if they're challenging to you to, or not, but I really feel like if we are reading the scripture and it's not stretching us, it's not pulling us, then maybe we're not reading it as it was intended because the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so when we go to God's word, we should feel God pulling us in a direction of holiness as he makes us more into his image. So when we get to Romans chapter 14, Paul speaks straight. He goes without reservation, speaking to a church that's diverse, a very diverse church, but they also don't agree with each other on doctrinal, on indisputable matters. And so Paul in chapter 14 gives us a template to follow when a diverse church doesn't see eye to eye on diverse matters. And as I was studying this chapter this week, it made me think back to a time 
when uh, we, my wife and my family and I lived in the country of Thailand. And for the people of Thailand, May of 1992 is called Bloody May. You see, a coup had taken place uh, earlier in the year, and people began to protest the, the coup, but then not only that, the general who led the coup, he actually set himself up as prime minister. And the Thai nation that had seen themselves as a democracy didn't like the fact that a military general had led a coup, overthrown the democratically elected government, and set himself up as the dictator. And so they began to protest, and starting in February, and it grew into March, and then in April. By the time it got to May, there weren't just hundreds, there weren't just thousands, but there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets protesting this. And then the military came in and on May the 17th, soldiers began shooting people. May the 18th, it, even, it accelerated even more. May the 19th, even more. May the 20th, it seemed like it was going to blow over into civil war. The military actually controlled the radio station and the television station, and so they controlled what the rest of the country was hearing, probably even the king. Now, the king of Thailand doesn't have any legislative power. It's a constitutional monarchy. But he was very respected in the eyes of the people. But most experts think that he didn't know at all what was going on. But it so happened that two of the king's children, the prince and the princess, were actually traveling abroad. And they were watching their televisions as foreign journalists were reporting about ties, ties beating up other ties, ties that were shooting other ties. And so they couldn't stand it any longer, and they got on the telephone, and they called, and they were able to talk to their father, His Majesty the King. On the evening of May the 20th, the two generals that were leading these, these separate factions were called to the palace. And on national television, everybody was watching what took place. And I remember Sarah and I, we were sitting there in, in our apartment there in Bangkok. We'd, been in, we'd not been out for weeks because of all the violence that was taking place on the streets. And we were curious as to what happened. And these two generals came into the palace and they, on their knees, they walked, they went to see the king. The king was sitting on a couch. These two generals that were highly respected men in Thailand, they got to their knees and they actually bowed down at the feet of the king. Then the king looked at them, and he spoke very straight to them. He said, you are an embarrassment to the country of Thailand. We have ties that are, uh, that are, that are being uh, aggressive against other ties. 
We have violence taking place where ties are, are being violent against other ties, and the world is watching. What are you doing? And he looked at him and he said, I want you to cease all hostility at this moment. The, the conversation lasted about 15 minutes. The TV was on, showed it, and then after that, there was no TV. And so Sarah and I just kind of went to bed. We didn't know what was going to happen the next day. But to our surprise, and to the surprise of all of the other foreigners, particularly the Westerners that were there living in Thailand, we got up the next morning, and everything was back to normal. It blew our minds. Schools that had been closed for weeks opened the doors. Banks, grocery stores, shopping malls that had been closed were now open. All the government offices were open, and the roads were full of cars, and there was traffic. And we're thinking, what just happened? How did this take place? Well, I asked one of my Thai friends about this, and I'll never forget the answer. He said, we are Thai... And we want to honor our king. You see, it was in this instance where the king pulled these generals in that they were reminded of who they were and of their greater allegiance. And this is what Paul does in this passage right here in Romans 14 and 15. He gathers the church and this letter is read and he says, I want to remind you of who you are and I want to remind you of your primary allegiance. And so, last week we spent some time looking at the two phrases, disputable matters, and we talked about weak and strong. And so we're going to go through this, this passage verse by verse, and I'd like for you to think about this concept of weak and strong, because actually there are, as I look at it, there are some disputable matters, where when I think about my position, I actually am in the position of the weaker Christian when I'm talking to someone else. But there's also instances when I take the position of a stronger Christian when I'm talking to someone else. And so Paul has something to say to the strong because sometimes we're going to be the strong Christian in a discussion of a disputable matter, and sometimes it might be that we're the weak Christian in the discussion of a disputable matter. And so we're going to look at this, and we're going to have two columns. We're going to have a column for the weak and a column for the strong, and we're just going to keep track of what Paul says to each. So we'll start off with verse 1, where Paul gets straight to the point and he says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. He goes right to it. He speaks to someone who is strong in the faith. And he says, you need to accept the one who is weak in the faith without quarreling. And he continues, he says, one person's Faith allows them to eat anything. He's speaking to the strong. 
But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything, he's talking about the strong, must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And so he says, I don't want you quarreling about disputable matters. But then he also says, those of you who are strong, I don't want you to treat with contempt the weaker brother or sister on disputable matters. Contempt. Don't despise them. Don't belittle them. Don't look down on them. He says, accept them, welcome them, let them know that they, they belong here, they're part of our family, and do not show contempt towards them. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, and the one who does not eat everything, he's talking about the weak now, must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So the scriptural command here is do not judge them. Don't condemn them. Usually when, when we condemn someone or we judge someone, we're saying that God has rejected you on the basis of your choices, and so I will too. But Paul says, that's wrong. Actually, God has accepted them. I think of it as, a, as, in my mind, a picture of, of someone eating at the table with God, having fellowship with God, and then I walk in and automatically I know that I don't see eye to eye to that person and I have to make a decision. Am I going to join the table and have fellowship or am I going to turn and walk away? Paul is saying, don't judge because God has accepted them in this disputable matter. Now, I want us to note these are commands. They're not framed as optional choices or things to do if you feel like it. Paul is not holding anything back. He says to one group, don't treat the others with contempt. And to the others, he says, don't judge and then Paul asks a difficult question. He says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Paul says, it's not your place to judge. It's not your place to condemn each other over disputable matters. You are not their Lord Jesus is. And if they stand, it's because their Lord has enabled them to stand. Then Paul moves on to the second disputable matter to further emphasize his point. He says, one person considers one day more sacred than another, and another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special it does so to the Lord. And then he goes back to the first issue of, dis of disagreement. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what's his conclusion? For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies to ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. 
For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul's saying here, we don't follow a dead rabbi. We don't serve a dead Messiah. You see, our rabbi is still leading us. Our Messiah is still revealing the promises of God. And so Jesus is our Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we belong to Jesus alone. So then Paul goes back to teaching. He says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? He's saying, do you realize what you're doing? Why? Why are you doing that? And then he goes back and quotes an Old Testament scripture from Isaiah chapter 45. He says, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Paul says that's not our role. It's, it's almost that Paul, like Paul is in a, taking the role of a parent in a parental way. He's, he's looking at them and saying, stop, let's stop this. I remember times when I, our children were young and, and I'd be driving and, and I would, every once in a while, I'd have to pull over and just look around to the back seat and say, let's stop it. We need to stop this. Once I got their attention. I don't know if you have that uh, in your past or not, but there's just times like that. And I feel like this is what Paul is, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying to the church, this is something that we need to stop. And he continues on. He says, instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. He says, instead of choosing, Instead of passing judgment, he says, choose to not put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. Now, there's two ways that we could be a stumbling block or an obstacle of faith as I've kind of processed this. And I think one way would be by treating other believers with contempt or judgment. I think back to my own life. Some of the deepest wounds and most challenging spiritual times that I've had have come from the actions and the words of contempt and judgment from fellow brothers and sisters. If I were to be honest, the closest that I've come to walking away from church to walking away from my faith have come from the wounds that I've received from my spiritual family. And as I processed this this past week, I realized also that I have had to do and I still need to do a lot of repentance on my own because I know that I have hurt others, many others as well. And so one way is by treating other people believers with contempt or judgment. But I think a second way that we might put a stumbling block in, in the, 
the way of others and their growing faith would be by not respecting their faith choices and insisting that they believe just like we believe or I believe. Paul says in verse 14, he says, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul is saying here, I am convinced as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing anybody eats makes them unclean. But notice what he says. He doesn't say everybody should now believe like me. What does he say? But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed by, because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not just about our disputable matter. Oh no, it's so much more. It's about righteousness, it's about peace, and it's about joy. And all of this is rooted in the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 18, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. You see, serving Christ by loving others in this way is pleasing to God. When my chief concern is not my rights or what I want, but rather how God can be glorified, that is pleasing to God. And also, our, this, this countercultural way of living, of embracing each other, because we're committed to a higher calling, it's going to strike a chord of approval in others as well. So, he continues, Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. This is a command that he gives to both. He says, let us, and he says, make every effort. Not when, merely when it's convenient, or not just when you feel like it, not just when it's easy. Make every effort to do what leads to peace. What leads to mutual edification. This is not easy. This is stretching us. For us to make every effort to build bridges, to do what brings peace in our relationships with others. What leads to mutual edification. Not merely what I want, but what's best for you. Can you imagine a church where it was everyone's priority to make every effort to bring peace for each other's mutual edification. What would a church like that look like? 
So Paul continues in verse 20. He says, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Now, we could probably draw a line under food, and we could probably put a lot of different disputable matters that, that we feel strongly on there as well. Paul says, don't destroy the work of God because of whatever might fit in that blank. The work of, the God, work of God in the church, he says, don't destroy it. The work of God in the hearts of believers, don't destroy that. And Paul continues, he says, all food is clean. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better to not eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Now, the NIV translate this word fall. But if you look in the interlinear Bible, you can see that there's actually three words that are used. The word stumble, the word led into sin, the word sick. Those of you who have King James versions, you might notice that, that uh, it includes all three of these. Stumbleth, offended, and made weak. Many scholars feel like these two additional words were added later because they're not in the original manuscripts, but they're, they're added later as words that will add clarification and amplification to what Paul is trying to say here. This word stumble, this word fall, is more than just a matter of preference. It's a matter of spiritual life or death. And he's saying to the strong, he's saying, you can be right in your doctrine, but wrong in your actions towards those who believe differently. Your uncaring attitude might result in the destruction of someone's faith or maybe their rejection of Jesus. And so he continues in verse 22, he says, So whatever you believe about these things, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Don't demand that everybody believe and practice just like you. Keep it between yourself and God. And so Paul begins to wind down and he ends with this blessing. He says, blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now we start into chapter 15 after this, but Paul, when he wrote it, he didn't divide it into chapters. So we just kind of need to keep the thought going as it was intention, as it was originally intended. And Paul says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Not to be concerned just with ourselves, but we need to bear with the failings of the weak. We need to be patient. We need to be understanding. He says, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. He's speaking to both the strong and the weak. Each of us, we need to be concerned about lifting up our neighbors, pleasing them for their good and, and to make sure that they are growing. And then in verse 3, he says, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. Paul is not asking us to do anything that Christ has not already done for us. You see, Christ has received our insults. Christ has borne our weaknesses. Christ has absorbed our moral and our doctrinal failures. And so when we go to the Scripture, it gives us endurance. When we, when we read through God's Word, it, it gives our hearts encouragement. And it gives us hope. And this is such a beautiful perspective because it's really not about us. And if we act like it's all about us, then we're missing the message of the gospel. We walk with endurance even when we feel like giving up. And we find encouragement even when we're disheartened and want to quit. And we find hope when everything looks and seems hopeless. And so Paul ends with a blessing and an exhortation. The blessing, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. For the weak and for the strong, the key is for us to have the mind of Christ. This is a gift of God's grace. We see people as Christ saw them, and we love people as Christ love them. Now, when we do this as a counterculture in a world that's full of anger and chaos and polarization, Paul tells us the result. He said, this is what's going to happen. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have one mind, and it's the mind of Christ. We have one voice, it's the message of the gospel. And not only that, it's not what, only what we think, it's not only what we proclaim, but it's how we live, how we treat each other. And here Paul makes his final conclusion. And it's so powerful in my mind that, that in the, the words of, of contemporary English usage, what's contemporary phrase that's in our, our society right now, I feel this is such a strong statement that Paul, he, he says it and then he holds the mic out and he drops the mic and walks away. That's the kind of statement this is right here. He says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. That's our template. How did Christ accept you? Was it begrudgingly? No. Was it with reservation? No. Did Christ wait until we had it all figured out? No. Did Christ hold back His acceptance until our mind was exactly like His mind? Of course not. If this was the case, all of us would be left out. But our standard of acceptance is really very, very simple. How did Christ accept you? How did Christ accept me? 
And that's how we should treat each other. And when we do that, we bring glory to God, and the world knows that we are followers of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So in a world that's diverse and divisive, if we can be a counterculture of that world and show acceptance and show love in a way that brings glory to God, the world is going to sit up and take notice. They're going to see it as something supernatural, and they're going to recognize us as followers of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God.